1924 short story, The Most Dangerous Game, by Richard Cannell. The Snare, a third season episode of The Incredible Hulk, is one of the finest single episodes of the series. The Most Dangerous Game has proved fertile ground for writers over the years. Its plot, a bored rich hunter, having killed everything that walks, flies or swims at one time or another, and has turned his attention to hunting man, has been adapted many times. There were radio plays, official film adaptations in 1932, 1945 and 1956 respectively, and thousands of outright rip-offs. Television, never slow to steal a good idea, has seen the story used in shows as diverse as Xena, Supernatural, Charlie's Angels, Criminal Minds and Law and Order, but this adaptation for this episode of The Incredible Hulk is one of the very best. Here is the teaser for the episode and the opening credits that beautifully set up the series premise. It's my move, David. <laughs> you see, I became bored with hunting animals. That's why I prefer to hunt men. I saw that beast you turned into, David! Unbelievable! Dr. David Banner, physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. The creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. didn't commit. David Banner is believed to be dead, and he must let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. Those opening credits are some of the best in TV history. From the narration, which set up the series beautifully, to the clips that they used all from the series pilot, to the faster, more pacey version of Joe Harnell's Lonely Man theme, The Incredible Hulk is a textbook example of how US TV opening credits were in the 1970s. Yes, they owe a little bit. I say a little bit. A fur bit. I say a fur bit, a lot, to the six million dollar man, but if you're going to rip something off, rip off the best. By the time of its third season, The Incredible Hulk was a hit both creatively and commercially. Despite the limitations of its formula, the series was firing on all cylinders in its third year. The stories of how the series came about are numerous and frequently told, but suffice to say that series executive producer Kenneth Johnson was not a fan of the comics and proceeded to change everything about them to fit the series formula. He changed the origin, a change that made it more personal and heartbreaking. 
He altered the name of the lead character from Bruce Banner to David Banner for any number of reasons, each more ridiculous than the last. Often it's repeated that Johnson changed Bruce to David as it's a stereotypically gay name, a charge many Australians would no doubt refute if Monty Python is to be believed. Another reason was that Johnson hated alliterative names. But if this is true, casting actor Bill Bixby in the lead role seems deliciously ironic. Personally, I think Johnson changed the lead character's name simply so he had a character named after his son. Johnson even changed the tone of the piece. No longer was the Hulk a Cold War parable, but a more intimate story of a man whose life was torn apart by the death of his wife, and as such, messed about with nature. As usual in stories such as these, nature laughed heartily and said, Not on your nelly, matey, and condemned our hero to a life of torn shirts and misadventure. Had there been an internet in 1977, it's logical to assume Johnson would have been lynched. But there was no internet, and so the changes went through with no problems, all except the one where Johnson wanted to make the Hulk red, a suggestion that made Stan Lee see red, and had the genial comics creator put his foot down. The series followed Dr. David Banner, played with no small amount of charm by the aforementioned Mr. Bixby, as he tried to find a cure for his affliction. Bixby's role in the success of the series cannot be understated. Bixby was one of those actors, like James Garner or Tom Selleck, that had a wide appeal. Men and women liked Bixby. He exuded a charm that effortlessly carried over to the screen and was appealing and engaging. And make no mistake, Bixby carried the majority of these episodes, excelling even when the scripts were less than good. He truly sold the slightly preposterous concept that not only did he turn into a seven-foot-tall green rage monster, but he also became a much younger actor, bodybuilder Lou Ferrigno, who portrayed Mr. Hulk to Bixby's Dr. Banner. This episode didn't need any extra help from Bixby, though, as it was one of the series' great scripts. The scenario is credited to Richard Masson and Thomas E. Zolzusi, and originally aired on December 7th, 1979. I presume that this is Richard Christian Masson, noted author Richard Masson's son, rather than the author of I Am Legend himself, but I prefer to be corrected. I referred earlier to the Hulk episodes being very formulaic, and I don't just mean in terms of plot, of which there were two different types. In version 1, Banner will actively be seeking a cure for his malady, and these will normally be big episodes, a two-parter or similar. These types of episodes were the rarer of the two, as, rather obviously, if Banner succeeded in curing himself, the series was over. The second, more frequent plot normally revolved around characters other than Banner that just happened into his orbit, either by Banner having secured a menial job that was clearly beneath him, or by dumb luck. Banner had a number of interesting character flaws which made him interesting to watch, the most prevalent of which were his anger management issues and his constant desire to interfere with stuff that wasn't any of his business. These incidents normally involved Pretty Woman, but could involve anyone, and Banner normally found himself embroiled with morally questionable characters, normally in the menial jobs that were beneath him. By the end of the show, Banner would have helped somebody sort their life out, ruined his own prospects in the process, and be forced to leave to the plinky-plinky piano music of sadness composed by Joe Harnell. But, as I alluded to earlier, the formula of the show was pretty set. In addition to these plot restrictions, a standard Hulk tale also featured two Hulkouts. A Hulkout was the term used by the producers to refer to Banner's metamorphosis into his rampaging alter ego, and they usually occurred at perfectly timed intervals, normally around 22 minutes and 41 minutes respectively, in a standard 46-minute episode. The snare is different in that it follows neither of these two stock plots. Banner is not employed in this story, and doesn't find himself involved in somebody else's mess, nor is he actively seeking a cure. 
As this episode opens, Dr. Banner is waiting in an airport for a flight. This brings up many differences between then and now, and one of the delights in watching old shows like this. Primarily, we always focus on how different a lot of these stories would be with mobile phones, but in this instance, the difference is far more a study in contrasts. Apparently, in 1979, one didn't need a passport or ID of any kind to travel by plane, and airport security was non-existent. As David was one of those guys who, were it not for bad luck, he wouldn't have any luck, his flight is cancelled. Killing time in the airport lounge, David meets Michael Sutton, played by Bradford Dillman, who, wouldn't you know it, has his own plane and own island. That's lucky, right? Well, if you think that, you've not watched enough episodes of the show. One of the strengths of The Incredible Hulk that a number of writers have spoken to is that even with the rigours of the formula, there was encouragement to do anything they wanted within the confines of that format. Writers were encouraged to tell any story that pleased them, as long as they slotted in the required Hulk outs at the required intervals. In addition, Bixby was instrumental in getting quality actors to guest star on the show, and was willing to take a step back to allow them to shine. Bradford Dillman was one such actor. Dillman is a great actor, the quintessential hits that guy, who worked steadily until he retired from acting in 1995. In 1971 alone, Dillman had seven movies and six TV guest shots in the camp. Listeners to this show will remember me mentioning him being in two of the Dirty Harry films, but he also appeared in Escape from the Planet of the Apes and the Wonder Woman episode Wonder Woman Meets Baroness von Gunther. What made the casting of the role of Sutton so important, though, is that, with the exception of a couple of background players in the opening scene, this is a two-character drama. Unusually, there is no damsel in distress in this episode, no cute kids. There are no other guest stars in any capacity, with the only other actor in even a supporting role being Lou Ferrigno as the Hulk. Even Jack Colvin, who played Jack McGee, doesn't appear. As such, Bixby needed an actor that could go toe-to-toe with him, and in Dillman, they found him. On an interview on Cinema Retro, conducted by Harvey Chartrand, Dillman was asked about this role. Dillman said, The Incredible Hulk was a joy. It's the old hunter-human story redone, but it was done wonderfully here. Bill Bixby, taken from us far too early, was a gentleman in the best sense. A gentle man who was intelligent and gifted, as well as a fellow San Franciscan. We compared notes on having one gold pin at Miss Miller's school of dance. The Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, was so uncoordinated that I worried when he had to retrieve my corpse. I feared he would drop me. Whilst waiting for the storm to clear, Banner and Sutton play chess, that old chestnut in TV shows wishing to go for symbolism, and for showing two people of equal stature clashing. Banner lets on that he has nowhere else to go when his flight is cancelled, and Sutton invites him to his island retreat, where he lives alone after a few shrewd investment choices went his way. Banner makes a curious slip here in letting Sutton know no one is waiting for him, and Dillman, equally subtly, plays that he noticed this and doesn't telegraph it really, really subtle piece of acting on both actors' part. Banner, with nowhere else to go, joins Sutton on his island, and again, in some subtle writing, the producers set up the boat and dock, and that Sutton's pilot has left them for the night, leaving them both alone. One of the great things about the Hulk was its musical score, and the theme Johannel uses when setting up Sutton's house supports the visuals perfectly, and David looks around at all of Sutton's hunting trophies and collection of ethnic masks. I take it hunting's not your game. I'm just taking them all in. Better than the other way around, huh? (laughs) Well, I don't know about you, but all of that moving around has made me hungry. Shall I prepare us a meal? Thank you. 
Despite this being a very dramatic episode, for the most part, Bixby gets to play some subtle comedy in this moment, when Sutton informs him he's eaten rattlesnake rather than the expected chicken. I don't believe I have ever tasted chicken like this before. Mm. I'm not surprised. There's no way that you could have. You see, it's rattlesnake. It's my own recipe, but I think I may have put in a bit too much curry tonight. I'm partial to curry. Would you like some more wine? Yes, I would, please. The setup continues with Sutton and David engaged in their chess match, and the creep factor is amped up when Sutton takes a picture of David. The director, Frank Orsetti, does a really good job in these scenes. With David drugged, he uses handheld cameras and unusual angles, and there's a particularly great shot from underneath the glass chessboard. David wakes up in his own grave and Sutton explains the plot via a tape recorder around David's neck. Good morning, David. You're still on the island, quite a distance from the house. As you can guess from your hangover, I drugged you last night. But I hope you're well rested. You'll be needing every bit of energy you have. Now, in your grave, you'll find a bag with food and flint. As to the rules, David, there are none. You see, I became bored with hunting animals. That's why I prefer to hunt men. You have an intellect. That's what makes you a challenge. Oh, and David, if it helps, think of chess. Like in chess, think twice about everything you do, because unlike chess, when this game's over, the board can't be set up again. With all the setup out of the way, the chase begins. What's great about this episode from this point on is that the show becomes a visual tour de force. On the printed page, it's hard not to imagine Stan Lee or Roy Thomas or any other comic book writer of the era filling the page with thought balloons and page after page of Banner talking to himself. But here Banner has many minutes of screen time where he has no dialogue at all. Sutton taunts him at all times, but Bixby makes the most of an almost silent role, tackling Sutton's traps and carefully outthinking this modern-day Craven the Hunter. Banner escapes via a waterfall and a rope ladder, and I must take a moment here to point out the exquisite stunt work. Whilst it's logical to assume Bixby was doubled for some of these more dangerous scenes, the doubling work is very well handled, with there being only a few rare shots where it's obviously not Bixby. David escapes these trials only to fall into a pit, and the stress finally proves too much. The Hulk out music kicks in, and a passing tarantula does the rest, pissing David off and prompting his transformation into the Hulk at an almost perfect 19 minutes into the episode. A lot of people, including my eldest son Michael, were scared of the Hulk out, but even as a kid I loved them. The sight of Banner's eyes turning white meant the Hulk was coming out to play. This was also one of the shortcomings of the show. They were never really consistent with the Hulk out. In some cases, David would Hulk out over very minor things, whereas, like here, the Hulk out would take a fur time to build. I always preferred these kinds of Hulk outs, where the episode would take time to slowly build David's anger, piling pressure upon pressure on the poor man before he finally snapped under the strain. This Hulk out, though, is helped out by being one with a slight difference, as Hutton is delighted to see the creature, feeling he has truly met the most dangerous game. The Hulk manages to escape, and in a scene that could have been dripped in treacle, he places a bird's nest back in a tree. This shows the Hulk's tender side, but it also contrasts Sutton and his approach to nature with that of the Hulk. 
Sadly, after an all too brief four minute appearance, he reverts to Banner. And if I have a complaint about this episode, it's that there should have been more Hulk than usual. I can't help but think that an extension of the Hulk screen time would have been really cool, as we could have fleshed out Sutton hunting the creature a bit more. Banner makes his way back to the house, and this leads to a minor goof. Sutton's recording here makes mention that David is the Hulk, and one wonders how he was able to record this so quickly given he's nowhere near the house, and indeed has been hunting Banner all throughout the episode. Very good. Considering that you're part animal, you've come far. You have my admiration. As you see, it won't be quite as easy to get out as it was to get in. But you might like to know that, so far, you've behaved just like any other animal. You headed straight for food. Now, there are a few things you should know about this room. For instance, hidden amid the items you need to survive is a key to the window at the right of the giraffe. Needless to say, there are also several traps you'll have to avoid in order to get that key. But everything you need is somewhere in this room. Clothing, food, and weapons. And one last thing. Here is in competition chess, you'll have a limited amount of time to make your moves. At the end of five minutes, I shall enter for a most literal end game. So consider this a perfect chance to see how well you work under pressure. Good luck, and begin. It's earlier on implied that Sutton records pretty much the same message for every one of his victims. So having a unique one here for David seems a tad strange. That aside, this is a great scene. The camera again goes handheld to give us lots of point of view shots as Banner searches the room for whatever he needs, including a jacket and a pair of boots. And we see there are a number of pictures of previous victims. Bixby is magnificent in this scene, all sweaty panic and urgency, mixed with his desire not to die at this madman's hands. It's a tense, well-edited scene more suited to a TV movie with a significant budget than a weekly television show, and Sutton seems happy that David escapes, pleading with him to bring the creature back. I saw that beast you turned into, David! Unbelievable! What was it? How do you do it? It was magnificent, David. Magnificent. Make it come back. You hear me, David? Make it come back. Make it. Make it come back. Dillman proves Bixby's equal here, modulating the performance beautifully from playful to childlike to angry, perfectly mirroring Banner's own transformation into the Hulk. The cast and crew do a great job in making Sutton a worthy adversary, not only for David, but for the Hulk as well. And we see here the benefits of casting two great actors in two great roles and just letting them have at it. Again, the episode goes very visual as we build towards the climax. Sutton starts preparing to tackle the Hulk by dipping a number of arrows in poison, as well as preparing a sniper's rifle, a process he undertakes slowly and methodically, intercut wonderfully with scenes of David fleeing for his life and trying to get away. These scenes are helped by the added realism of David being only clad in his torn jeans, a jacket and boots that he managed to grab earlier, although his jeans have miraculously managed to repair at the bottom. 
In a nice touch, though, the top button that we saw pop off when he hooked out is still missing. Location photography also deserves a mention at this point. As with most episodes of The Hulk, this was shot mostly on location at a very scenic and lovely woodland locale with streams, waterfalls and plenty of foliage. The location adds a lot to the feel of the episode, with a good number of wide shots adding to the believability that this is indeed a remote location far away from civilization. It's at this point in the episode David starts turning the tables, playing Sutton at his own game. a hunter, Sutton. A real hunter plays a fair game. You're a coward. You're afraid of a fair game. You only care about winning. That's all you want out of life, isn't it, Sutton? To win. Can't you hear me, Sutton? Much better, David! David? Why does it happen to you, David? Are you like an animal? I know what makes an animal attack. You get past his fear zone so he won't run away. And then you enter his attack zone, so he'll stay and fight! Well, what does it take to push you, David? Is it fear? Pain? With Sutton rattled, David starts hunting Sutton rather than the other way around, hiding in lakes and streams to mask his trail and leaving taunting messages himself. He lures Sutton to a trap of his own devising, but Sutton escapes too quickly and the cat and mouse battle becomes more one-on-one. -on -one. David, having given his location away, falls back into the role of hunted and, trapped on a mountaintop, Banner and Sutton have the final confrontation. David. All right, the game's gone on long enough, it's over. Oh, no. No, no. Not quite yet. You haven't turned into that beast. That's what I'm after now. I saw it happen in the pit, David. Please. Let me kill it. Make it happen again. No? Then I'll make it happen. I'll find it, your animal. I don't think it's fear that makes it happen. And how about pain? Poor David was put through a lot on this show, but being whipped is one of the toughest, especially as the scene plays out rather bravely with no music, an unusual choice given how great the score has been for the rest of the episode. At an almost perfect 42 minutes, the Hulk reappears and yanks Sutton over onto his own poisoned arrows. Bewildered and dazed, Sutton stumbles into the water below and the Hulk leaps after him, rescuing his corpse. In 
the epilogue, a refreshed Banner picks up his little bottomless bag and buries Sun's body, a nice little humanistic touch, before stepping into the boat we saw earlier and making his way across the lake to civilization. But Sutton has one last trick up his sleeve. Check and mate. <laughs> You've won. Unfortunately, I can't congratulate you in person. My defeat, no doubt, was total. But rest assured, there are no ill feelings. No. I wish you always good hunting. However, David was smart enough to leave the reaped cassette player on the dock as he rows away to the mainland. episode, the Snur manages to both follow the formula of the series while still managing to play with it. Ignoring the almost perfect timing of the Hulkouts, this is an atypical episode in that there isn't a role for an actress, normally a prerequisite in a show of this era, nor is there a standard problem for Banner to solve. This is much more of a battle of wits, and indeed a battle for survival, and it's pulled off magnificently, being paced and shot far better than a normal TV episode of this era. In fact, the episode first speeds by, with no padding or flab. Whilst the plot is nothing new, following the original short story almost to the letter, the acting, location photography, score and direction are all top-notch. Bill Bixby and Bradford Dillman work very well together, portraying the chess masters they are as they take the game off the board and into the real world. The thing the Hulk did very well, and the reason I think for its success, was that it managed to play these ridiculous scenarios as real. Before Richard Donner was barking the word verismilitude at the crew of Superman the movie, Ken Johnson and Bill Bixby were doing it every week on television. The series as a whole seems to have emerged relatively unscathed from the stigma of the 1970s, an era a lot of uninformed people believe to be rather cheesy, when in fact it's the complete opposite, and it's now rightly regarded as a classic. Whilst the two-part episodes often achieve acclaim, the Hulk maintained a pretty high level of quality over its five-season run, and this episode is well worth your time seeking out if you see it on Netflix. accompanied every good thing that I watched on TV. Um, Only one email. I don't know what to make of that. I'm very sad. I suppose the thing that we can draw from that is that nobody gives a toss about Lois and Clark. Alright, no more Lois and Clark episodes then. The email is from Chris uh, Franklin and Cindy. That's why I paused, but it's not from Cindy really, is it? It's just Chris. Hello, Andy. Ah, Lewis and Clark. One of my late teen obsessions which began when I went off to college. I was such a fan of the post-crisis Superman comics of the time. A TV adaptation that sprung from that iteration had me at hello. Adding the fact that I was just as infatuated with Terry Hatcher as just about every other fanboy of the time. And you had must-see TV 
You understand when Sunday nights were usually spent hastily returning to my dorm from a weekend at home. Unfortunately, Lois and Clark was indeed a mess, as you said. When you wanted them to be serious, the scripts called for comedy. When a situation was genuinely funny, they beat it to death. And then there was the utter betrayal of their audience with the frog clone wedding saga, which made Spidey's clone saga look like Dark Phoenix. Although I watched every episode during its network run, I've kind of stuffed those episodes into the dusty long box of my mind, rarely to even remember I own them. I only have the first two seasons on DVD. By the time the series ended, I was ready for it to go. My obligation to Superman fulfilled. Luckily, my brain no longer works this way, and if I don't like it, I don't support it, hence me buying very few modern comics. Although I remember H.G. Wells' appearance, I'd completely forgot about Tempus. Just goes to show you how much I discount Lois and Clark, like an ex-girlfriend that you really liked at the time, but you just as soon forget now. That's probably unfair. I need to re-examine the show beyond the first season and a half or so. Dean Cain is probably the most self-conscious Superman of those that played the role for any amount of time, never appearing to be very comfortable in the suit. But I did like his Clark. Lane Smith is one of my favourite Perry Whites, right behind John Hamilton. So thanks for making me remember Lois and Clark. It's like a buddy bringing up that one ex-girlfriend you've kind of intentionally forgotten. And yes, Cindy knows about her, so it's okay. Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. I'm glad you enjoyed it, even if you had no memory of, of Tempest. I do have to say that um, he was probably one of the more memorable elements of the show. He's certainly one of the few things I remembered about it, which is why I kind of dug him out and watched it. I was just kind of in the mood for Superman. And uh, it was a toss-up between that and some George Reeves. And I may have watched some George Reeves. But for some reason I was just in the mood for Lois and Clark, and hence that episode. Anyway, that's the only email for this week. Next time, if everything goes according to plan, it'll be another musical episode, but this time movie themes. So hopefully that'll be next. Remember, the Amazon link is available on twotruefreaks.com, if I can speak properly. Put my teeth back in. And if you want to drop us a few shekels, click on that button whenever you buy anything from Amazon. It doesn't cost you a dime or a penny. Pennies are better. Uh, but it throws a, um, helps keep the lights on household where we all live in the same house like a big comedy sitcom and uh, i'll see you next time bye bye